0: Thanks, Kara, for reading so wonderfully. And hey, guys, my name is Nick. I'm one of the pastors here at church. And honestly, it's so good to see half your faces. One of the best parts about being a preacher when you're wearing masks is I can't tell whether you're smiling or not. I assume you are. I assume God's moving in your heart. And think, Feel free to use your eyebrows to express, you know, whatever you need to do. Difficult time. So many restrictions. But I just want to just commend before we go anywhere, just the fact that we're able to still be here. Just sit in a pew worship the Lord in in song and in scripture, it's just a beautiful thing. So I just don't take that for granted. So thank you for being here, masks on. Mercy and compassion. Mercy and compassion. If you've been in a church for more than a minute, these are words that you'd probably be familiar with. Even if you haven't been in a church, you probably assume that Christianity is a religion that cares about mercy and compassion, but these are concepts and terms that aren't just one among many virtues that Christians care about. No, no, these are the heartbeat of the Christian faith. Mercy and compassion ought to be woven into the fabric of the church, of the the life of a Christian person, because it's essential to who God is and how he's revealed himself to us. It defines everything about us as a church, about you as a person. But more than that, it's, it's not just something that we receive, but it's something that we ought to embody as the people who call ourselves Jesuses, that we ought to be a merciful and a compassionate people. But I got to confess to you, like right from the outset, that I don't know if this is something that I'm very good at. Uh, if you grabbed a couple of my closest friends, closest family, and you said, hey, what are four or five words that you could use to describe who Nick is? I don't know if mercy and compassion would come up. You might be like me, but I think mercy and compassion are something that I do and live when it's convenient for me. Um, If someone comes just right before me, enters into my life and shows me that they have a deep need or or, or, or in, in need of the compassion that I could offer them, I'll have a look at my bank account and my schedule and decide, well, I guess I got the time and the money, so I'm very happy to help you now. The Lord bless you. But when someone comes into my life and I'm real busy and I'm stressed and things are difficult, often that's just when things just go by and... I kind of feel that mercy is something that I'm willing to do out of my own convenience and I I wonder if that's something that we experience here. I want to ask you right now, if I was to grab a couple of your closest people in your life, would mercy and compassion feature as some of the top words that define you? This isn't a beatdown. this is A celebration of what God has done for us and a commendation for us to step in the power of the Spirit to become more and more the people that Jesus wants to call us to be. And that's so clearly in Scripture is a people that ooze and overflow mercy and compassion to everyone, not just when it's convenient. So I want to just start by thinking a little bit about what it means to receive the mercy and compassion of God and then move towards what it looks like to give and pour that out into others. The first reason we need to care about mercy and compassion is because that is who God is. God is a God of mercy and compassion. These just aren't one of, you know, 20 or 30 or 40 different attributes that we might use if we feel like it to describe God. No, These are intrinsic to His character. They're central to the person of the God who made you and formed you in your mother's womb. It's right there at the beginning of Scripture, and it goes through every page all the way to the end. God revealing himself to be a God of mercy, showing love and affection and kindness to people who don't deserve it. People who actually rebel and reject him are the very people that he extends his love to and his mercy. That's just who he is. You might have read the Bible a couple of times and noticed that there's a story that kind of gets chucked around a lot, and it's that beginning, that beginning in the garden where God makes Adam and Eve, the first two humans. He sticks them in this garden. It's paradise. There's, there's trees everywhere. There's fruit that's delicious. There's food. They can go anywhere. They can do anything, and God is with them, and God loves them, and God says, look, this is all yours, but one thing. Don't eat the tree that I'm pointing out to you. Don't eat any of the fruit there. And they're like, well, of course we're going to do that now that you said no. They're like, toddlers, you tell them not to do something and off they go, right? And so the story of the earliest pages of the Bible is how humanity descends into sin. And you've heard the story before, but this isn't just a moment where they disobeyed a rule and ate a piece of fruit. But this is a moment where humanity has decided what they're going to stand for. And that is a life that, that moves God out of the picture and establishes themselves in their own truth. And in their own strength. It's an act of rebellion and autonomy. And you can imagine if you were the God of the universe who spun stars into, into motion through your speech and fostered this, this little picture of humanity in paradise, that you would be outraged at their rebellion. And if you're a holy God of justice, that you might actually punish that moment of sin. And rightly so. He does. In Genesis 3, there's this moment where God pronounces a judgment upon man, upon woman, upon serpent. But, but there's this, this beautiful line that I want you to see. It took me a long time of reading Genesis over and over again before someone showed this to me. It's from Genesis 3, verse 21. It's going to come up on the screen. Here's what God does for Adam and Eve. The Lord made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. You're sitting here thinking, Nick, that's a really weird verse to kind of pull out of nowhere. What, what, what's the deal? What's the deal? Well, there's this moment when Adam and Eve do sin that god they're hiding from God and God says, well, where are you? And they say, well, well, we hid God because we were naked and, and we feel the shame of that nakedness. And so God does rightly, justly pronounce a judgment for their sin, but he doesn't leave them there. He doesn't just abandon people once they reject him. He continues to stay connected and offer a mercy to them. And this line just declares to anyone with eyes to see that that God is a God who doesn't abandon us in our failure. He says, I'm going to clothe you even though you've rejected me. I'm going to hold on to you even though you've turned away from me. And so they, they leave paradise and begin this descent into sin. And Genesis is kind of this story of falling into sin and sin. But even though sin continues to abound, God still shows up. God still shows his mercy, and he is there for us. He is a God of mercy. You just get to the next book of the Bible, Exodus. The whole Israelite people enslaved in Egypt, completely oppressed, and he releases them out of that slavery. He loves them. He he leads them out of Egypt. He parts the Red Sea. You've heard the story before, and they go, and they go, and they go. But Exodus equally is just full of these people grumbling. Time and time again. Oh my gosh, how good was it in Egypt when we're being whipped and forced to work all hours and killing our firstborn sons, you know what I mean? It was wonderful back then. God sent us back, shut up. (laughs) You guys don't know what he's done for you. They grumble and they grumble and they grumble. And yet here's what God says about himself. He's going to come up on the screen, Exodus 34. This is beautiful. The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. No matter how relentlessly we run from him and push him out of the picture, he says, I will maintain my love to thousands of generations. Notice that he's a compassionate and a gracious God. Mercy is our God. God. We worship the God of mercy. And it's not just, you know, the fact that God made us and God is merciful, so we should care about mercy. But just to go to a step further, you and I depend entirely upon the fact that He is merciful. If you call yourself a Christian, every fiber of your being is being held together by the grace of God, that He doesn't give you what you deserve. Instead, He loves you as you don't deserve. He forgives you your wickedness, your rebellion, and your sin. That's the declaration of who he is. So we don't just care about mercy and compassion because it's who God is. We care about mercy and compassion because it's the heart of the gospel. You know, the gospel is something that that we don't just care about as one of the things of the church. It's the center of everything. The good news of Jesus laying down his life for his enemies is the central thing that defines this church and every church that calls in the name of Jesus. And that moment of Christ giving his life on the cross is the complete and utter declaration of the mercy of God to you and to me. He's, he's on the cross, Jesus. They're nailing him there, the son of God. What does he say? Father, forgive them because they don't know what they're doing. That's that's the mercy of Christ, that that he's on that cross for the very people who are nailing him there. We, we we, We live and breathe mercy as the people of God because we literally would not exist without it. The gospel of grace is the gospel of mercy and compassion to you and I when we don't deserve it. You've heard it before, but it's absolutely everything. There's this verse that you should get tattooed on your hand or your foot or your rib or wherever you want to get this tattooed. or Don't get tattooed, but just enjoy it. Romans 5 verse 8. You ready? But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were kind of, you know, mostly okay, but had wandered off the path a little bit, God just kind of gave us a little bit of a No, no, no. While we were sinners, in the depth of darkness, Christ died for us took our place and gave us light and life. You exist with the freedom and the life and the forgiveness of God because of the mercy of God. And so if mercy and compassion are not central to who you are as a Christian, you've missed the point of Christianity entirely. There is not a moment that you stand in your own strength, on your own efforts, in your own deeds, you stand entirely upon the mercy of Jesus. And you just need to pause right now and praise him for it. There is nothing within you that holds together without the mercy of Christ. That is who we are as a church. And we can't go anywhere else before we just establish that fact. I don't don't care what kind of person you are, what what kind of things you've done. Jesus loves you in the midst of your mess. In the depths of your brokenness, he comes to you and says, I will lean into your mess and take it upon myself. And I'll give you life and forgiveness. And it's from that foundation of who God is and what the gospel is that suddenly you and I start to live a new way, to start to to live a new life. And I want to argue right now, and this is where I think, you know, it starts to get the crunch time for you and I, especially if you've been a Christian for a while, We need to start to live and breathe and embody mercy and compassion in the way that we function, in the way that we live. Not just when it's convenient, but as the very heartbeat of who we are. And the reason is because it's the way of Jesus. It's the way of Jesus. Um, You know, January sometimes offers a bit of free time. So if you've got some free time this January, here's my challenge to you. Go home, spend some time this month, open your Bible, and just read through one of the Gospels. I don't care which one, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, a biography of the person of Jesus. Read through all of it from start to finish, and tell me what you see, what kind of Jesus you encounter there. Because I can guarantee you that one of the things that's going to shine out is that Jesus is one of the most compassionate men that you've ever seen. A man who just lives with those who the rest of the world has forgotten about. A man who cares about those who are just deeply hurting and broken. That's our Jesus. The reason that's important is because when Jesus calls you and I to his grace, he says, come and follow me. He says, take up your cross, deny yourself and follow me. He says, become one of my disciples. And that's important because in the first century, when you became the disciple of a rabbi, you were being invited to come and actually pattern and model your life in the way of that rabbi. Jesus is not just saying, hey, come and receive my grace, and then I'll give you a bunch of moral teachings that might or might not change who you are. No, he's saying, I'm inviting you in so I can change everything about you. And what I want to do is I want to shape your life in the pattern of my life. And the pattern of Jesus's life is that he is a merciful man, a compassionate man who cares deeply for the vulnerable and the lowly. I was reading Matthew 8 this week, um, and there's this man who comes to Jesus, who's a leper, It comes to Jesus um, in the midst of this this terrible skin disease, which at any point in history is a terrible thing. But in the first century, if you were a Jew and you had a skin disease like leprosy, you were considered unclean. You weren't actually allowed to live in the city or the town that everyone else was. You were sort of exiled to outside the, the city limits because you couldn't infects the other people with your uncleanliness so this man's not only suffering from a disease he's suffering from deep loneliness he's suffering from the fact that he can't join with the people of God to worship God he's been completely cut off from everything that matters to him and Jesus has this man come to him and this man says if you're willing you can make me clean you spend a minute with Jesus you know what he's going to do he's going to make this man clean but what I love is the way that he makes this man clean he could speak, hey man, you are healed. And suddenly, boom, he's healed. He could snap his fingers and bam, this guy suddenly just like the skin disease falls off like a sham-wow. Like Wow, the dirt is gone. Like he could be completely clean like that. But what does Jesus do? It's on the screen. Jesus reached out his hand and touched the man. He touched this broken, sinful, leprosy man. He said, I am willing be clean. Immediately he was cleansed of his leprosy. Now, we don't know how long this man had been suffering from this disease but you can imagine that it's been years since he's been touched by another clean human and jesus just offers him the dignity and the mercy that only jesus can offer and he loves him anyone else touches this man and they're considered unclean they've sort of sort of taken on his leprosy in a way but when jesus touches this man he cleans him he cleanses him he, he offers him mercy and love that only jesus can offer that's the compassionate Jesus that we are to pattern our life after. Just a chapter later, there's another beautiful story where Jesus is walking through a crowd on his journey to heal a person. Someone's come to him and asked for help. He's, you know, he's off to help because that's who Jesus is. And While he's being surrounded by this crowd on his journey, he feels someone reach out and grab his robe. And there's this beautiful verse. I don't really understand it. But it says, he felt the power flow out of him. I mean, I've never felt the power flow out of me, but that's awesome. Um, and he says, who touched me? And the woman, kind of like, you can expect shaking a little bit, like, what's he going to say to me? He says, it was me. Um, we learn in the story that this woman isn't just unwell, but she's been suffering from bleeding for the past 12 years. And scholars think that this is sort of a menstrual bleeding. It's causing a lot of pain and discomfort in her life. But more than that, just like the leper, has left her unclean and ostracized in her society. And Jesus looks at this woman in the next verse, chapter 9, verse 22, and he says, take heart, daughter, your faith has healed you. And the woman was healed at that moment. Jesus cares so deeply about those who everyone else has forgotten about. He does it quietly a lot of the time. He doesn't do it for the sake of everyone to look at him and think he's wonderful. He does it because he's a merciful God, a merciful man. And that's what he's calling you and I to. So I want to ask you again. Do mercy and compassion define you? Because they must if you follow the person of Jesus. There's not a beat down. There's not a condemnation for you. If you're saying, oh, no, I don't think that defines me. I already confessed that I don't think I'm the man that I want to be in this. we already covered. We're covered by the grace of Jesus. It's his mercy that just holds us together. By the power of the Spirit, this church, you individuals, we want to be people that live and breathe the mercy and compassion of Jesus, our Rabbi, our King, our Savior, our Lord. And so we come to this, just the end of this talk. I just want to give some practical ways to move forward here. The Zechariah verse that we had read out is a beautiful one another verse of the Bible. That's what we're looking at this January. In Zechariah chapter 7, this is what God says. Um, he says, Administer true justice. Show mercy and compassion to one another. Do not oppress the widow or the fatherless, the foreigner or the poor. Do not plot evil against each other. Mercy and compassion is the calling of God's people. Receiving the mercy and compassion of God, pouring it out on everyone else around them. And you notice that there's a bunch of categories of people that are given in this verse, and I think this helps guide us into what that means. It says, Do not oppress the widow, the fatherless, the foreigner, or the poor. Um, In the first century, not the first century, in the ancient world, these were the categories of people who were were deeply vulnerable and, and unable to support themselves. If you were a widow, you didn't just lose the partner of your life who you were walking through the world together with, which would be awful, but you've lost your main income. Suddenly you're not able to live in the way that you expected to if you've got kids. What does that mean? The fatherless, similarly. You've lost the head of the household who's provided for you. The poor, well, it's obvious. You don't, you don't have enough to survive. The foreigner, not afforded the same benefits of, of the native people. These are the people who require the help of others to exist and to to live and to thrive. Who are the people that are going to help these marginalized, these vulnerable? It should be the people of God. It should be you and I. Now those categories probably still stand today. The widows in our community need our love and the fatherless are suffering from great pain and they ought to be loved. Um, But I think there are a bunch of categories. This isn't exhaustive. There's so many people who fit into this vulnerable space. Just a couple that I came up with today. Um, I think the single mothers who are struggling to make ends meet, working so many hours while trying to also look after their kids and manage life in a hectic pace of Western society, those people need our love and our care and our practical help. I think of those who are in the world at large just suffering from poverty, living on less than $2 a day, unable to break this cycle of life that not only has condemned them, but condemns their children. Who's going to help them? Well, I hope it's the people of God who have received mercy. I think of the disconnected and the lonely who maybe aren't suffering financially, but who you know, maybe live at home by themselves or with roommates who don't care about them, and they're actually just weathering the world with no one to lean upon, who's gonna be with them and for them? Well, I hope it's God's people who have been helped and loved by Jesus and wanna offer that same love to them. So I just wanna think about three spheres that we, as a people, could start to think about mercy and compassion, living and breathing it in the way that we live. It could change the way that we operate and actually increase the witness of our testimony to who Jesus is, because not only do we have something that we love, but it's something that we offer to others. In word and deed. So there's three spheres. I want to think about the church, the community, and the world. You might have noticed in that Zechariah verse, it said, show mercy and compassion to one another. Well, that's a word to ancient Israel saying, within your community of the people of God, the people of Israel, you ought to be known as those who show compassion and mercy to one another. Yes, the people of Jesus love and care abroad, but our first priority is to, within the family of God, show the mercy and compassion to the family of God as they deserve. Can you imagine walking into a church where someone gets up and preaches all these wonderful truths about the person of Jesus, but then you find out that no one really knows each other or cares about each other, there's no real relationships, and there's people consistently in need, and no one cares about them. Suddenly, that that testimony of Christ is just thrown out the window. No, we need to live and breathe it in our community, that if we as a community have received mercy, that we, we live in that mercy and share that mercy with one another. There's a very strong verse from 1 John, which I'll read out to you. It comes up on the screen from 1 John 3. It says, If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need, but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Let's pause there. That's strong. How can the love of God be in that person? Dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and truth. I think this is a call for 6 p.m. Neutral Bay to be a community that knows each other well enough to be able to meet the needs of our people. It's one thing to kind of go up to someone after the service and say, hey, how are you going? And they go, oh, yeah, I'm good. Turns out they're actually really suffering and struggling in life, but because we keep things to surface, no one actually really knows what's going on. It takes two, two sides of it. One from us, an investment in other people relationally, to know what's really happening in each other's lives, and from the other side, being a willingness to be vulnerable and share our needs. Because it's when we can be vulnerable and share that we're in need, well, it really that's the Christian posture of saying, God, I need you. It's one thing to go to that to God, but it's another to do that within the community. And it's as we commit to one another, knowing each other and loving one another, that we begin to meet each other's needs, to care for those in our midst who are actually more vulnerable than others. And that's when our community starts to get transformed. Where do we start? Well, two things. One. When you have that conversation after church, hey, how are you going? Oh, great. It's going good. Let's just take a pause. Let's get real with each other. Let's be honest. Let's be the family of God, not the loosely connected acquaintances of God. Yeah? Second thing is we've heard it tonight, connect groups. These are a moment where you say, hey, I'm going to join a small group of people for a whole year with the exact priority of committing to them of knowing them, of loving them, of praying with them, of walking this journey of life together and being willing to give of myself and to care for them in their need and to be cared for in my need. So if you haven't thought about joining a connect group, well, here's the second plug of the night. Not because it's important in you know, our minds, but because it really will transform our community when we commit to one another in love like that. That's the church. It should be our priority to love brothers and sisters. The second thing is our community. Um, in this year of Love Thy Neighbour, I think loving our community is going to be an enormous thing. You know, we're sitting in this, this, the midst of pandemic and post-pandemic world where people are isolated, lonely, and in need, and we have the mercy of Jesus to offer and the love of Christ. What a wonderful opportunity, and yet I think it's probably true for most of us that we don't really know our neighbors' names or aren't really involved in their lives to much of an extent. And if you are someone who does know your neighbors and cares for them, well, come and talk to the rest of us, because it's not common in our culture. We kind of keep to ourselves in our little bubbles, and we plow through life together. But what a persuasive witness to, to meet the people that live next door to you, or downstairs from you, or across the road from you, and to say, hey, I'd love to have you over for dinner. You say, oh, how are you going? They say, oh, I'm good. You know, two or three dinners later, they tell you, well, I'm actually not good. My marriage is falling apart. My son, he's just been diagnosed with a serious illness that's going to affect the rest of his life. And that's the moment when you truly get to know someone, that you get to meet them in their needs and show them the love of Christ. Jesus says, you are the light of the world. Don't hide your light. Let it shine. And as people see our light, that's when they'll praise God and give glory to him. It's our witness. Love the community. Um, I just really want to push us in that. What does it mean for you in your little corner of the world, whether you live by yourself in an apartment with a family, you're on a soccer team? Let's commit to knowing people and loving them and meeting them in their needs. Lastly, the world. Um, we live in a globalized world. I could talk for hours about the downfalls of the smartphone and the impact of social media on our young generation, and there's lots of negative things we could say, but there are some really wonderful things about a globalized world, and that is that we can support and love people who we've never met and never will meet. And we can meet significant, deep, global needs with the love of Christ quietly from our corner of the world. I heard about, a couple of years ago, about a wonderful organization that I just love. They're called International Justice Mission. Anyone heard of them before? Yeah, a few of us. That's great. They're committed globally to ending sexual trafficking and slavery. And so they go into these countries where people are being sold as objects, and they go and they rescue women and men from sexual slavery. But more than just sort of solving this problem on the ground, they then follow up by stepping in with their lawmakers and their police officers and they speak into the system and shift what what countries are doing to prevent and stop that thing from happening in the future. It's a wonderful ministry that's actually motivated and, and, and practiced by Christians. It's all out of the love of Jesus and the mercy and compassion of Jesus. I'm not working for them. I actually don't know many people that work for them, but I have the privilege of praying for them, of giving to their work, and that's an opportunity to show the mercy of Jesus. Not so anyone would see, but so that we can quietly be the people of God that he's calling us to be. We've got missionaries that we support here at church. It's a wonderful thing to give to them and to pray for them. But have you thought about the fact that they're actually ministering to so many people that you're never going to hear about? What would it look like to get to know your missionary a little bit better... And to actually pray for those people in that community, meet specific needs of those who are in front of them. Um, they will never know your name or know anything about you, but what an opportunity globally to love. Now, I'm not, I'm not going to try and provide a list. There's, just, there's too many things that we can and should do. But the question is, will you and I, as the people who have received the deep mercy and compassion of God, be a people who live and breathe the mercy and compassion of God, will we stay on autopilot, help where we can when it comes in front of us, Will we open our eyes and our ears and take hold of the opportunities that God has put before us? Will we create opportunities that actually aren't there yet so that we can be the people that God has made us to be? We can do it in the power of the Spirit. So I'm going to close by praying that God might change our hearts and transform us as a church to be more and more like this. Let's pray. Father Almighty, you are a God of deep, deep love and affection for a world that has rejected you. You show mercy in just an amount that we can barely fathom. You lay the life of your son down so that enemies might walk free, forgiven, and loved. You take those who have rejected you and you draw them in and you make them family. Your mercy and compassion knows no bounds. We pray that you might take hold of us as your people that have received that and you might help us to live that in our own walk, that we might pattern ourselves after Jesus, that we might apprentice ourselves to him and, and live in the way that he set for us, God, would you just in this week ahead, just show us a couple of people, show us a couple of spaces that we can take hold of opportunity and show love, mercy, and compassion as you've called us to. We pray this in the name of Jesus, by the power of the Spirit. Amen.